And as for you guys, I hope you were listening. Um, so, uh, as an introduction to this, uh, kind of a classic story, right? Mike tells us, he says, hey, we're going to be preaching through the parables. And I get really excited because I absolutely love the parables. If I could preach or teach about one thing that Jesus does, it would be to preach or teach about his parables. I absolutely love them, right? Uh, inspirational to me as a teacher on how he teaches, but the content of his parables are like nothing else. Like nothing else. And so I get really, really excited. And then he says, I want you to preach about the wheat and the tares. And then, balloon deflated. And I'm like, seriously? Of all of the parables that Jesus tells, he wants me to talk about this one, right? I don't know what it is about it. Okay, I don't know if it's because like, I just never put much time or thought into it, or perhaps it's one of those, I'm like, eh, it's just one of those end times type of things. It's about judgment. I'm just going to pass that over. And I never really get excited about this one. But what I want to tell you is that as I've studied it, as I've looked at it, read it over and over and over again, as I've studied it over and over and over again these past weeks, God has opened up something to me that I think I had been pushing away uh, over and over and over again. And so this morning, what I want to do with you guys is take you through uh, sort of what I have been learning over these past few weeks uh, in this parable. So if you could, open up to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 is where we find uh, a number of Jesus' parables. uh, And here we're going to look at, starting in verse 24. Verse 24, chapter 13, Matthew 13, 24. And uh, then we're going to skip over to the the, little section there, but I'll I'll bring you along with me. I just want to read this to begin. 13.24, it says, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, do you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to to them, An enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. And gather the wheat into my barn. Now go ahead and skip down to verse 36, because Jesus then explains this. He says, He left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous will shine forth as the sun and the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. That's a lot to hear. Now, um, one thing I, I want us to understand is in this parable, there are a couple contexts as we go through this. 
Okay? Uh, one of them is a literary context, which is short and sweet, and I'll talk about that in a second. The other one is more of a cultural context. Okay? And so let's begin with, with the literary context. If you look through Matthew 13, just look at all that you see in Matthew 13, you see a number of parables. In fact, you'll see seven of them. Right? There are, well, and it actually helps me out because I have, I have four on one page and three on the other page. <laughs> They're divided quite evenly. But in fact, if you look at these seven, the first four have something in common and the last three have something in common, right? But when we, when Mike talked about beforehand uh, a couple weeks ago, the parables all talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And what we find in the first four parables is that it teaches us about the growing of the kingdom of God. The growth of, and, 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 and if you look at the parables, they fit quite nicely into these uh, kind of uh, agricultural, agrarian type of farming type, uh, type of parables. And then if you flip over to the last three, you see that it talks about the value of the, of the kingdom of God, or how precious it is. But here we are, this one that we're reading today is second. So it's in the first section. So what we see here is the context tells us that this is going to be about the growth of the kingdom of heaven as Jesus brings in this kingdom and begins to teach, of it, teach it, okay? So let's keep that in mind. Another context is a bit of a cultural one, okay? Because we, as Mike talked about a couple weeks ago, parables are, as he says, uh, a, uh, well, let's, I'll quote my mother, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? Uh, it, Mike talked about how it's a, a picture that's cast alongside this divine truth that lets us see into what God is doing, so it's this picture of everyday things that is cast alongside that we can see into there. But in fact, uh, this parable teaching that Jesus does is actually rooted in something even much older than Jesus' ministry there in first century. It's, it's rooted in something that goes back to these uh, rabbis. As you read through your New Testament, you see Jesus referred to as a rabbi. It's just a, he's a teacher of the Hebrew Scripture. Right? And he has his disciples. He has his students. Uh, and, and Jesus has grown up in this tradition. And he's heard parables in, uh, from all of his teachers and rabbis before him. And he's heard uh, their, their teaching and their parables and their stories and their illustrations. Now, what Jesus would have called these things is not parables, but mashals. That's the Hebrew word for it. M-A-S-H-A-L, mashal, right? And in fact, if you look uh, in between a couple of these parables, Matthew interjects and he quotes Psalm 72 and he says... Right here in verse 35, it says, This was done to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, I will, or Psalm 78, I apologize. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. And that word, if you go back to Psalm in Hebrew, is mashal. This parable is a mashal. Now, the tradition of mashals uh, for these rabbis is that as they teach and as they're traveling along, because their discipleship uh, their, with their students isn't one like us where we sit here, much like now, where there's one person in the front and a bunch of people just staring, right? Uh, it's more interactive, right? The disciples would follow the rabbi everywhere they went because the rabbi taught everywhere he went. He taught about everything. He taught about how to interact with people. He taught about how to uh, interact with the government and how to interact with all these different things, and the disciples were always asking questions. The rabbi always had to be ready to answer, but usually with a question. But here we find that as he went along, he would tell these stories. The rabbis would tell stories, much like Jesus did. And he would tell stories of, if you notice, they're about agriculture, they're about fishing, they're about fathers and sons, they're about everyday things that people with everyday lives interact with every day. Right? Because he wants to draw a picture that they will understand. 
He wants to put something there in front of them that will connect to where they are because he's talking to farmers, fishermen, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, people that lead everyday lives. And so the rabbi would teach in such a way. Now, <clears throat> the thing is, is that we like to describe God with adjectives, right? We like to describe him and say, well, God is omnipotent. God is omniscient, right? Uh, it means he, he's all-powerful. I'll go back to that one. All-powerful, and he's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere. We like to describe God in adjectives, and, and that's rooted more in uh, the Greek culture that surrounded Jesus. They love to describe things in these kind of theoretical, philosophical adjectives, right? And these things are all true. But Jesus comes from a Hebrew culture. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll read some adjectives about God, But mostly what you will find when you read through the Old Testament is that you will find the action of God. You will find what God does, and they will know who God is by what God does. So they wouldn't necessarily say God is omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He would say that God creates and God destroys. They wouldn't say that God is omnipresent. They would say, now I went to the highest of heights, and you were there. I went down to the depths of Sheol, and you were there. I could not escape where you are. So they describe God in his action and with story. And so when Jesus tells these parable, parables, he is drawn to talking about God in his action and in his stories. <clears throat> but when the rabbi began to teach, or when he teaches these parables, uh, a lot of the times, and, and, okay, well, let me backtrack. Let's talk about what, what parables are not. There are two things that parables are not, okay? Parables are not fables. They're not talking animals or trees that come to life, okay? Uh, there's no magical wizard or uh, nymphs or anything like, like this. It's everyday things that we see all the time. There is a moral, perhaps, but it's not a fable. Another thing is that f- parables are not strictly allegories. Now, some of you are like, well, wait a minute. Didn't you just read how Jesus allegorized this, and he said that this person is this, and this person is this, and this person is this? Yes, Jesus tends to, a couple occasions, he allegorizes characters within a story. But if you look at the end, he leaves it wide open, and he doesn't allegorize the entire parable. He'll say that this is here, this person represents this, and this person is here, but as a whole, it's not an allegory, as we understand it now. But he does allegorize certain things. Now, when the rabbi would teach these parables, or teach these mashals, and he would go through this, uh, the point of this, uh, or what the method is, or the intention, we'll say, is that the rabbi wanted to uh, take this earthly, or this heavenly truth, this divine truth, sort of abstract thing from, uh, from up here, something like describe the love, or describe the kingdom, or describe something up here, and he wanted to take something from the earth, this picture, and he wanted to bring them together and connect them. And he would bring them together and he would connect them and he would push this one connection through the middle of the people that he's listening to. He would push it right through them to one point that would drive them to one decision. Sort of like an arrow. If you can picture an arrow in your mind as it comes together to one point and it is driven home to one point and one decision because after the people, the listeners would hear the parable, a lot of the times what we do because we analyze things like this, is we're like, now am I the prodigal son? Am I the older son? Am I the pig that the uh, prodigal son fed? Am I, like we try to put ourselves into the story somewhere. 
But the intention of these mashals, of these parables from the rabbis, wasn't so that we would throw ourselves in the middle of the story and try to think, what would I do in that situation? The intention is that when the listener hears the parable as a whole, they would come to a point where they have to make a decision. They have to make one choice about where their life is going to go after hearing this. They have to decide, am I going to change what I'm doing because I'm not doing things according to how he's teaching? Or am I right alongside this? Am I going to decide to live in that and solidify that in me? And so it comes to one point and one decision. And as I read this parable over and over again, I had to tell myself, and I came to the point where I'm like, I came to that one point. What am I going to do after listening to this? What choice am I going to make? And I challenge you as we read through this and we look at this, what is God telling you? What is the one thing that he is telling you to do in this parable? Now, to help me look at this, I had to look, there were a couple elements in this parable that really stuck out to me. A couple elements that really stuck out right, right, right off the bat. And these two elements were, uh, first, the work of the farmer countered by the work of the enemy. Right? The work of the farmer countered by the work of the enemy. And it's obvious, right? Right off from the very beginning, he goes out and he plants the seed and, he, and, and, and we would just expect it to grow. But then as he's sleeping, as he's resting, this enemy comes in and he puts these weeds among the seed, right? We talk about his intention. We obviously know he's just trying to sabotage him. Whether he's trying to destroy his livelihood or just destroy his crop because he's a nuisance, whatever it is, he's trying to get under this farmer's skin, right? Now, as we look at this interaction and we begin to draw out and think, well, how can this apply to me? Where am I in this this, for me, rose one of the toughest questions that there are to answer, right? The only tougher question is the second part that I'm going to talk about in a minute. But for a lot of people, this is where it becomes hard to understand how God can let such evil things exist, right? How does God and the enemy, how do they go together here. How does good, the work of the kingdom, and the work of the enemy, how do they live next to each other? The problem, I think, that I always had is that I misunderstood the power and the value of both good and evil. I've seen too many comic book movies, and so I tend to look at good and evil as equals, right? For every Batman, there's a Joker. For every Superman, there's a Lex Luthor. For every hero, there is an equal and opposite villain. And that's the problem, is that we look at good, the power of good, and we look at the power of evil, and we see them as equal. We see them as corresponding counterparts that can interact with each other, a yin and a yang, perhaps, that either have to be in balance or one has to overcome the other. But that's not right. Good and evil are by no means equal. Good and evil are by no means equal in value nor equal in power. And I'll tell you this, this may sound philosophical, but my kids would look at me like this if I said this, but what I will say is good can exist by itself, but evil cannot exist without good. Good can exist by itself, but evil cannot exist by itself, and this is why. Good is created by God. Evil is simply a perversion or the absence of 
the goodness that God has created. And we see this all the time, right? We see this in our everyday lives. We think of very good things that perhaps we are part of. Very good things like, uh, we'll go with the basics, food, water, and shelter, things like this, or clothing perhaps, things that we see as bare necessities. And very much good can come out of these things, right? Giving these things or sharing these things or simply being clothed and fed. These are good, good things. But what happens with these things is that they can, if they are let to uh, certain devices, can turn into evil things like greed or envy or hatred or competition. We even think of things like honor and excellence. And what can happen with these when they are skewed and they are twisted can turn into such things as pride and hatred for one another. Even a beautiful thing like love. A beautiful thing like love can be twisted so in such a disgusting way that it can tear apart families, it can tear apart people, and it can hurt us to the deepest core. And I think that the problem that we see in our, how we look at the action of good and the action of evil is because we look at the source of good and the source of evil in the same way. We look at God and we look at Satan. And from the minute we grew up, we listened to songs by Carmen that have them in a boxing match, perhaps. <laughs> right? And we see them as two equal forces that are going to fight against one another. Right? And sometimes, just to make the story more interesting, we picture the devil being able to knock down God at some point. Right? The Joker, at some point, you thought, was going to beat Batman there in, right, in, Dark, in Dark Knight. But... The problem is, is that God and the devil are by no means equal, by no means equal in value or equal in power. And we see this, right? We see this displayed all throughout the Old Testament. If you kind of look at, uh, I don't know what you would say, uh, the history of uh, the adversary, the history of Satan throughout the Old Testament. Now, I'm just going to give you a couple examples, right? And you can look at them later if you want to. Look at Job, Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. Rather famous interaction of of Satan, the adversary, and and God. God stands around and he has his angels gathered around him and they're, I don't know, having a a party or something. I don't know what God does with his angels, right? Uh, But they're they're standing around and all of a sudden up comes Satan, the adversary. He comes up kind of wringing his hands and he's like, so what are you doing, Satan? Oh, just hanging out at earth, you know, doing what I do. And he's like, okay. And then Satan begins to attack, but he doesn't attack God. He doesn't confront and go after directly God, no. He tries to go after God by going after one of his servants. He goes after Job. And he says, well, he's your best. Can you let me have him? And God kind of lets him go, right? But we see that the adversary doesn't attack God. Why? Because he can't. He can attack God's people. Now, if you go on into your Old Testament and you look at Zechariah chapter 3, we see another picture, right? Here, uh, God is standing there, sort of in a courtroom setting, and in front of him is Joshua the high priest, right? Joshua the high priest, he's covered in filthy rags from head to toe, kind of representing the sin of the people of Israel or, or the sin of himself, right? And he's just covered in it. And who's next to him? You guessed it. The accuser, Satan. He's right there, prosecuting attorney. Right? I can say that because Jeremy's not here today. Okay? 
But he's standing there next to him. And what is he doing? Is he saying, God, you did this, God, this, God, that? No. He says, look at him. And he points out all the sin and all the guilt and all the filthy rags that are on Joshua. Because he knows he can't confront God. He knows he has nothing on him. But he can go after his people. And what does God do? God strips him of those dirty rags. He cleans him and he puts brand new clothes on him. Because God has the power to do that. Now, if you fast forward into your New Testament, Matthew 4, and in the beginning of Luke, you see the only time where it seems that the devil confronts God himself, and this is in the temptation of Jesus. But we see that he doesn't try to defeat him. He tries to just pull the rug out from under him. All right, first he, uh, his first temptation that he goes after is this temptation, this psychological temptation. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, right? If you could imagine that, 40 days fasting in the desert, right? I can't even go, like, a meal. Like, I'm, I'm looking forward to lunch right now. I had a granola bar for breakfast. I don't know where you guys are, okay? Uh, but, like, imagine 40 days, 40 days. And the first thing that the devil comes to him with, he's like, why don't you turn these rocks into bread? I bet you can do it, Right? I'd have been like, sure, right? pass me the knife and the fork. And the, I don't, you don't eat bread with a knife and a fork, but that's, you, know, you get my point, right? But he goes after him with a psychological temptation. The next one is a volitional t- temptation, right? He goes after his will. He puts him on top of this building and says, hey, I bet you can't jump off. He says, if you jump off, I bet they'll save you. Doesn't, doesn't the Bible say that, that the angels will save you? They won't even let your foot dash against the stone, right? He's going after his will. Who's in charge here? Jesus again resists it. Now the third one, the third one is toward his imagination. The temptation toward his imagination. Because let's think of this. The devil here says, just bow down to me, worship me, and I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'm going to give you everything, all these kingdoms. My question is, who owns the kingdoms of the world? Whose are they to give? They're not the devil's. We hand him authority every now and then when we give in to him. Even Adam handed him some of the authority they were given at the beginning, right? And we see that in the effect of that. But he doesn't own anything except what is handed to him. So we see here, the devil never attacks God face to face because he can't. Because in the same way that the power of good and the power of evil are not equal in value, nor are they equal in power, Neither is the source are they equal in power. Right? And what we see of this, and what becomes so confusing when we read this parable, or perhaps uh, becomes evident, let's say, not, so, not confusing, but becomes evident, is that we see this played out when he talks about the wheat that grows and the weeds that grow. Because at the beginning, when we look at good and evil, at sometimes, evil can look kind of good. Right? We can look at it and we can say, oh, that's not so bad, right? But then it begins to grow. It begins to mature. And we know that when goodness grows, it just turns into more and more good. But when evil grows, it gets more and more evil. And it, it's exaggerated. It matures. It's full growth. Now, uh, we see this mostly if you look at examples of our children. We'll go for a simple example, right? If you know a kid that's very giving, right? 
You, you, everything that they have, they're just like, somebody asks them, like, hey, can I have that? Can I play with that? They're like, sure, right? And they just give it, right? These are rare children, but sometimes you can find these children. And the thing is, is if that is, uh, if you find that kid and they give and you uh, praise that in them, right? And, and you, uh, you reward that in them, they will continue to give and give and give. And by the time they're 10, 20, 50 years old, they are just going to be a giving person. They'll be known as a giving person for the rest of their life. Why? Because that goodness of giving is nurtured in them. Now, the other side of the coin, right? You know kids that just take and take and take, right? Most of my kids, that's what they do, right? Three brothers in a, in, in a barn, that's what, that's what they're going to do. Is that if there's one toy, it doesn't matter how good the toy is I have, I want to play with what they have, and that's, that's how it goes. Now, the thing is, is that if that is never countered, if that is never put away, we see the, the maturation of that in them is that they will always be takers when they're 10, 20, 50 years old, right? And they grow up to be an old curmudgeon, and that's what people, they just dismiss it and say, ah, they're just an old curmudgeon. But in reality, what has happened is that over the years, that evil in them, that bad in them, has been let to grow and grow and grow and grow. And it becomes more evident as they get older. Now, <clears throat> the question, or actually, we've got to go to second point two, right? Woo, look at that, point one, point two. Point two. Because first we looked at uh, the... Uh, the power of the kingdom, right? the power of God, the power of good, countered by the power of the enemy. Well, the second part of that, which for me is the hardest part of that, is the patience of the farmer. Right? Because what does the farmer do when he sees that there, is, there are weeds with his wheat? What does he see when he sees there is bad with his good? He doesn't go in there because what's our first inclination? Our first inclination is like the slaves, like the workers, like the angels. We want to go in and we want to just take care of things and fix that, right? If we see weeds in our garden, we want to go out there and pull them out because that's what we do. We want to solve problems. We want to get rid of the bad so that the good can grow. But what does the farmer do? He steps back. And he waits. And you want to kind of punch him in the face. Right? Because you're like, how can you wait around and watch this happen? How can you wait around and just look at this evil, this bad grow in the midst of these good things? Well, he can do this because the farmer is good. The farmer is kind. And the farmer watches out for us even when we're not watching. Because the farmer knows two things. He knows a greater good, and he knows a greater harm. The farmer knows the greater good that can come out of things when conflict is rubbed up against the goodness. He knows the, the more good things, the greater good that can come when we are in the midst of things that push us to grow. But he also knows what happens if we try to rip out the bad too soon. It can e- sometimes, as, as displayed in the parable, it can actually uh, rip out who we are and we can no longer continue to grow. Because if you rip out the weeds too soon, if you've had a uh, three-year-old help you in the garden, you know how this goes, right? Because the roots of the weeds are so intertwined with the roots of the plant that when you pull that out, it actually pulls it from the soil, and it can no longer grow. In the same way, sometimes, and this is the hardest part to hear, is that if we were to get rid of all of the conflict, all of the evil, all of the bad that surrounds us, sometimes 
we would no longer grow. We would no longer grow. Psalm 37. If anybody knew about conflict, it was David. Psalm 37. David, uh, from the very beginning, right? He, David is uh, anointed king as a, young, as a young lad, right? And then he, he grows up and he's chased by the, pre, or the, the previous king before he becomes king, right? He's chased around because David's this little troublemaker uh, and, and Saul's going after him all the time. David is surrounded by his enemies. And then when he becomes king, right, he has his own military enemies that he's got to fend off. And then uh, later on in life, his own kids rise, try to rise up against him. Right? David has always had people around him that have tried to destroy him. Now, Psalm 37 is written a little bit later in David's life. And when we look at this, I'm just going to read the first four verses. The fourth one's probably a little more familiar to you. But what does David say about this? He says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass. They will fade like the green herb. Sounds familiar. But trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And this is that one thing. This for me is that one thing. Because I'm so worried about what is going on around me. I'm so worried about the evil or the bad that has been surrounding me that I feel is tearing me down, choking me out, that I have ceased to cultivate faithfulness. I've stopped doing that. And that's my problem. I've stopped cultivating faithfulness because I'm too busy looking back at the farmer thinking, why aren't you doing anything about this? Why aren't you doing anything about this? And he is. He's waiting. He's waiting. Peter says that the patience of the Lord is for repentance and for salvation. 2 Peter 3. He says the patience of the Lord is for salvation. But we want to be saved right away. We want to be saved right away. So this one thing for me, when it comes down to it, this one thing that I learned as I gathered from, uh, from looking and reading and opening this up and, and going through all of these different things throughout the Word, the one thing, the one thing that I have learned is to trust the farmer. Trust the farmer. He knows best because he's good and he is kind and he watches out for us even when we don't know it. See, when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven in here, in this parable, we so badly want this to be prescriptive. We want a command to come at the end of this. When we read through this, we want him to go through and say, well, this guy is this, this guy is this, this guy is this, and this is what I want you to do about it. We want that. We love that. Because then, we don't sit around. We know what to do. Right? I give open-ended assignments with my students. They're like, Mr. Hammond... What do you want us to do? I'm like, well, what do you think needs to be done? That's the rabbi in me, right? Now, the thing is, is that this parable is not prescriptive. It's not telling us to do something. It's descriptive. It's describing what is going on. Remember, if we look back at the previous, if you look back at the previous parable, what you see is this parable of the four soils. And in this, in this parable, uh, the seed, the word of God, the kingdom of God is being planted in this soil, 
Now, what happens after it's planted? Well, it has to grow. And so what we see here in this parable is a description of what happens when the kingdom of God begins to grow in a world that does not understand it. When the kingdom of God begins to grow in a world that actually goes up against it. When the the kingdom of God grows in a world where the work of the enemy is working against it. And the problem is, is that we know what this is like. We know the feel of this. We know what it's like when we feel the work of the enemy, when we feel the work of this evil one, of Satan working all around us, whether it's through loss of a job or loss of a friend or loss of a loved one. Or we look around and we see all of these things going on around the world like sex trafficking and natural disasters and we wonder, how can you let this be? How can you just sit back and watch this happen? See, the kingdom of heaven is not just a geographical region. God didn't just tape off an area and say, well, there it is. Right? This isn't Lion King. He's not standing on Pride Rock and saying, hey, everywhere the uh, sun touches is our kingdom. No. Right? It doesn't work like that. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is dynamic. It's moving. The kingdom of heaven is the effect of the blessing and the grace of God as it moves everywhere. The effect of the grace of God as it moves throughout the world. And as it begins to grow and it begins to move around the world, it will come up against the work of the enemy working directly against it. And so we will see suffering, we will see pain, we will see loss, and we will experience it ourselves. What do we do? Trust the farmer. Trust the farmer. These past five months have been the hardest for me to trust the farmer. My mom went into the hospital in September, paralyzed from the chest down. And over the next three months, she was slowly killed by melanoma cancer, tumors in her spine and on her brain. And I watched this happen. I've seen it happen to her. And this isn't just somebody I know. And, it's, and, and I'm not even going to pull, this is my mom card, but that's why I'm crying. This is somebody that I have seen plant more seeds for the kingdom than anybody else. Everywhere she goes, she planted the seeds of the kingdom. Amen. Why? How can you sit back and watch this? As he began to talk with my sisters, the one thing that always came up, I'm having trouble understanding the goodness of God. I'm having trouble understanding the goodness of God. That was our problem every single conversation, every single time. And so we would read, we would share We'd share blogs and we'd share uh, posts about this or we'd uh, read scripture and we'd share this. And one thing that came up over and over and over for me as I looked into this was a psalm. 
Over and over it came, and I don't know if it's the language of the psalm that was shared with this or what it was, but every time I would think about this, it continued to come into my mind and come into my mind and come into my mind. So turn to Psalm 1. Turn to Psalm 1. This is the psalm that continued to come into my mind as I'm trying and I'm wrestling with this, looking and trying to find the good in this, trying to look and see what the farmer is doing. I'm just going to read it for you. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in the law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season. The leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff, which, is, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. <clears throat> what we see at the very beginning of this psalm, and what I saw over and over again, is this progression, or I'll say digression, digression, right? Is that we see, uh, does not walk, in the way of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Walk, stand, sit. This is not a progression toward life and movement. This is a digression toward death. Because what does he say? The way of the wicked will perish. That's where it led. That's where it leads. I tell the kids at school, I say to them, you know, um, it's easy for you, if you're walking through the hallway with a bunch of troublemakers, it's easy for you to, eat, to get out of that because you guys are walking. I said, but when you sit with him at lunch, it's a lot harder to walk away when the principal comes over. It's a lot harder to walk away when certain topics are talked about. It's harder to get out of that when you are sitting with them because we sit with people that we associate with. And as we look at this, it goes from walking to standing to sitting and then dying. Because that is the way of the wicked. But what does he say? It's the way to life. Delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it. Where do we find the promises of the farmer? In the word of God. Where do we find the action of God in his scripture? Where do we find the reputation of our creator? In the word. And as we look at the word and we think about it, we meditate on it, we dwell on it, we even delight in it, we begin to see and we begin to live in reaction to how good the farmer is. Even if he's not, doesn't seem like he's being good right now. Even if it seems like he's standing off, we know the character of who he is. And where does that lead us? Where does it lead us when we begin to trust the farmer and we look at his word and we are planted in that? It says that the roots go deep next to living water. And it bears fruit in its season. Its leaves do not wither and it prospers. When the storms come, when the evil is all around us, when the pain is surrounding us, we will stand firm, not because of what we are made of, but because of the one that we are rooted in. 
Because that's where the fruit comes from. It comes from the roots. That's where the stability comes from. It comes from the roots. That's where the life in the leaves come from. Not from the tree, but from the roots. And when we are firmly planted in who God is, and He is good, and He is kind, we'll know that He's always watching over us, even when we don't know it. Trust the farmer. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are good and that you are kind. And even in the midst of pain, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering, when we look out and we see it or we experience it ourselves, that we can always lean on the goodness of who you are. That we can always attach ourselves to who you are and we can find life in you. I pray that we choose life. That we choose you. And that we trust you. It's in your son's name that we pray and we thank you. Amen.